morning, everyone. If you have these journals, or if you'll pick one up, or if you're using it on the online version, um, what we've done is we've created three seasons, and you know each message is like an episode. And what I've done is is you have, for instance, the passage today, Mark 1, 21 through 45, and kind of a title. That that's to give you the broad context of what we're doing. Then what Kyle and I are doing is we're dipping in and preaching messages on small portions of those chapters. So for those of you who are type A and you're like, well, you didn't talk about that verse or that verse. You just need to get over it. And, uh, <laughs> and take responsibility, read the context of it, okay? And then uh, otherwise we could be here for like five years going through Mark. And uh, God's made you all very intelligent, so you can grab kind of context around that. But I, I wanted to say that, and then we'll try to make sure as we tell the story that we fill it in as we go, all right? So FYI. Speaking about Mark, that's our, our roadmap, and this whole series is about a fresh encounter with Jesus, you know, journeying with him to transformation, walking with Jesus to a new or renewed life. We want to start out this year and, and go through the rest of this year, and really through the rest of our lives, encountering Jesus as he is, and not what he sometimes becomes to us because of what the culture says about him or what our friends tell us about him or the preacher says about him or even our own kind of uh, views that get a little bit warped. We just want to go back and, and find the authentic Jesus and, and make sure we're authentically following him. And so let me tell you a little bit about the guy who wrote this gospel. Um, according to scholars and tradition, we, we believe it was a guy by the name of John Mark. He's mentioned in the scriptures. For instance, in Colossians chapter 4, we learn that he was a cousin of Barnabas who um, recruited him to go with him and with Paul on the very first missionary journey. We also learn uh, later on in the New Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 4, one of the later letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, that uh, Mark had become a very valuable asset in the spreading of the gospel in those days here near and far as well. But it's what Peter says about him that's of most interest to us. Uh, Peter is writing one of his letters, and at the uh, verse 13 of chapter 5, he says to the people, he says, your sister church here in Babylon, which is a code word for Rome, uh, sends you greetings, and here's the important part, and so does my son Mark, same Mark, same Mark that wrote this gospel. Now, Mark is not literally Peter's son. He's Peter's son in the faith. So evidently, Peter has taken Mark under his wings and has mentored and discipled him along in his spiritual journey, and they've created quite a, a spiritual bond, quite a closeness that's there between the two of them. You might be wondering why I point that out, why that's such a big deal. Well, there was this guy named Papias. He's one of the early church fathers, Papias. And he lived sometime between 60 and 130 uh, A.D., and uh, his life would have overlapped, for instance, the latter years of the Apostle Paul. So he's very close to the apostles, at least one of them. And he tells us in what we have remaining for some of his writings that John Mark, all right, that I've already mentioned already, Mark, who's like a son to Peter, is, is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And that what he writes down, what we're studying, is actually Peter's testimony of the life and times of Jesus. So really what we're reading here in the Gospel of Mark is, in a sense, kind of the Gospel of Peter. Mark is his amuensis. He's kind of like the secretary who's kind of writing down and saying, well, here's what Peter saw and experienced as the Holy Spirit inspired him to, you know, share these things, and I've, and I've written them down for you. 
You say, well, why is that important to us? Well, because that means as we read the Gospel of Mark, we now have kind of a pair of eyes to look through. And that's, that's Peter's, Peter's perspective of Jesus. And because really important in certain passages like, like Mark chapter 8, which we'll get to eventually, I imagine it was very hard for Peter to tell this part of his story to Mark. Peter relayed to Mark that day when Jesus came and told the disciples that he was heading to Jerusalem and he was going to suffer and die and be crucified and that he would rise again on the third day. And it's like they couldn't hear that last part. And I can imagine Peter trying to tell Mark, and I took, I took the master aside and I confronted him. The old King James Version says, and he rebuked him and he said to Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, not on my watch. I'm not going to let that happen to you. And then Jesus says these strange words to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan, which means like you're acting like Satan right now. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And that's all of our challenge, isn't it? It's so hard to have the concerns of God at the front of our mind. We have a tendency to have our own concerns first. And so even when Peter says, I'll protect you, he's really thinking about himself and protecting himself. So what does this infer about Peter? If Jesus says to him, get behind me, what does that infer about Peter? It infers that Peter was actually trying to get ahead of Jesus. He was, he was trying to actually lead Jesus. And if you remember last weekend, I said, that's one of the biggest challenges that we face as followers of Christ is our tendency, our proclivity to get in front of Jesus instead of staying behind and letting Jesus lead us. And it's when we get in front of him that we miss out on his presence, his power, his blessings, his working, his kingdom. And that's why a lot of us just, we, we struggle with really experiencing Jesus and knowing him and, and, and having him alive in our lives, so to speak. It's because we've gotten ahead of him instead of staying behind where we belong and walking with him. I want you to think about your life for just a moment. Whether you're watching online with us, imagine many are on this cold day, at least here in Minnesota, or you're sitting here right now. Would you say that Christ is leading you or are you trying to lead him? I was thinking about that in terms of my own personal life, and as I was doing that, I thought, you know, when it comes to my prayer life, sometimes I find myself trying to lead Jesus in my prayer life. Does that happen to you? For instance, here, you know, I, I, I call it me-led prayers, right? Here be an example. Let's say you're interviewing for a job. Lord, I just interviewed for this job. I think it'd be the best job for me. Please make sure I get that job. In Jesus' name, amen. That's a me-led prayer. That's like genie in the lamp, right? I'm rubbing hard enough in my prayers, and hopefully God will do as I wish. A God-led prayer would say, Lord, I just interviewed for this job. I don't know if it's the right one for me or not. You do. If it's the right job for me, then God, I pray that you impress them. They would hire me. And, and God, even if they offer me the job, it's not what you want. Let me be so troubled in my spirit. Let me just know it's not the right thing. That's a God-led prayer. Let's do one more. Here's a me-led prayer. Lord, um, I'm just struggling with this illness. Would you heal me so I can get back to a normal life? A God-led prayer would be, Lord, I'm struggling with this illness. If you choose to, would you heal me? But... I don't know if you have some purpose in this for my life. I know you know all about me, and if, if somehow I need to stay in this situation a little bit longer to learn something from you, to be a testimony to you, God, I, I accept your will in this. See, that's a God-led prayer. 
So when you think about how you pray, would you say your prayers are more me-led or God-led? Good question, isn't it? Might be something to jot down in the journal to kind of go back and reflect on. But, you know, our prayers and our actions kind of go together. And so sometimes, you know, in terms of our actions, we tend to try to get ahead of God in the things that we do. I mean, a lot of us will pray, Lord, not, you know, God, we want your will to be done. But how many of you beside me get impatient with God sometimes? Of course, we all do, right? And, and what we do is we then try to move ahead of God. And I was trying to think of areas in our lives where we have a tendency to get impatient with God and move ahead of him. And I thought, you know, sometimes the area of finances. And then I thought certainly in the area of relationships. And, you know, from what we know in the surveys and what they're discovering amongst uh, Christians is in the area of sexuality, not wanting to wait on God, not wanting to follow his prescription of how we handle our our uh, sexual lives, or in, in terms of careers, you know, just rushing to make the dollar, make the dime, you know, get that job, and, and then, you know, regretting it later. You know, in the Bible, the first king of Israel got fired because he tried to get ahead of God, Saul. He, he was just not wanting to be patient and wait on the Lord and follow the Lord's instructions. When you think about your actions for a moment, would you, would you say that you tend to let God lead your actions? You act as he makes clear to you what to do, or do you have a tendency to, to try to lead God and then ask him to, to either clean up the mess you just made or, or to bless the decision you just made? You know, how would you say you tend, uh, how would you say you tend to operate? And so the question that comes up, you know, in all of this is how do we stay where we should be in step with Jesus so that we can experience his best for our lives and, and for his glory. And that brings us to our passage for today. And uh, in that broad passage I gave you, we're going to look at just a couple of verses. I was telling Marcia, my wife, uh, this week, I was working on a message and I had intended to cover several verses. And on page eight of my manuscript, I was still working on point one. And so I decided, rather than keeping you here till 3 p.m., I'd only keep you here till 2.30 p.m. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn open uh, to Mark chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 35. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 1525, 1525. And out of respect and reverence for the Word of God and to get our blood flowing, would you stand with me as we read? And I'm just going to read verses 35 through 42 today. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well. And I'll preach to them too. That is why I came. So he traveled through the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. May God bless the reading of his words. You can be seated. Everybody's looking for you, Lord. Disciples were kind of uptight about things. Jesus was nowhere to be found. The pressure and the demands on Jesus' life through his earthly ministry were great. 
the first part of his ministry, everybody wanted him, everybody loved him. At the end of his ministry, everybody hated him and called for him to be crucified. We'll talk more about that later on in the series. But right now, everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Everybody wants an appointment with Jesus because he just can meet every need. Physical needs, psychological needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. I mean, you name it, Jesus can make it happen. And so the fan base is growing really big. He could have had his own YouTube channel. It was a big deal. He had, you know, unlimited followers on Facebook if it existed at that time and whatever else. I mean, it was just everybody. It was all about Jesus. People are coming from hundreds of miles away just to see him, hear him, maybe get close enough to be healed by him. Can you imagine, and put yourself in that place, can you imagine how hard that would be, the temptation that would present you, the pressure to perform, to please the fan base, to keep everybody with you and following you, what do you have to say next, what do you have to do next to, to draw the crowd and keep the crowd? And isn't that maybe a little bit of what was behind Satan's temptations in the wilderness if you want to get the details of that, you can read there in Matthew chapter 4. It's only slightly mentioned in Mark. I mean, Satan says, after Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food and water, he says, you're really hungry. Why don't you turn those stones into bread? And if you've ever been to Israel, there are more stones than you know what to do with. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine that if Jesus just, with that kind of power, the crowds that, that would have just stayed with him, the revolution he could have led? Or he, Satan says, jump off the pinnacle of the temple and the angels will catch you so you don't dash your feet against the stones. I mean, can you imagine? Wow, I'm going to follow that guy. Or Satan says, bow down to me. Satan's the God of this world. And he says, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Just bow to me. All that pressure was real. All that temptation was real. And all of it was being pressed against Jesus. And he couldn't be found. Disciples get up and they go to look for him. And finally, they find him. It was called the Eremos in the Greek. That word means wilderness or desolate place. See, long before the sun had risen in the sky, Jesus had already gotten up. Gone out to be alone with God. And that, that kind of raises uh, a question. Like, if Jesus, who says, you know, that he's very God, is very God, why does he need to go and get alone with God? It's one of the most profound mysteries in the universe and in the scriptures. This whole idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and theologians say his human nature, his divine nature are co-mingled, which means you can't, it's not like you can separate Jesus out into human Jesus here and divine Jesus here. They're inseparable. They're, it's a mystery, this, this co-mingling together. He's fully God and fully man. Paul describes it this way in Colossians 2.9. Would you read it aloud with me? For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. All the fullness of God. He's not little God. He's not half God. He's not three-fourths God. The fullness of God is in him. And then perhaps the most famous passage describing the deity of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this. He says, though, and I'm going to circle some words here. He says, though he was God, okay, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. So 
This is the decision that he makes. All right? Instead, he says, he gave up his divine privileges. So that means he, on his own, decided to limit himself. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. So where's the humility? Well, becoming a human being, encapsulating, limiting himself. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So it's our Lord Jesus who, in essence, says to the Father, I, I choose to do this for their sake in accordance with your will. And so the question is, why? Why would he do that? Why would he limit himself and become dependent on his father? And I can give you several reasons why. First of all, because his intention was to fulfill, to fulfill God's will that none should perish but all should come to repentance. And the only way that's going to happen is someone has to die. Someone who's perfect has to die for imperfect people. And that's what Jesus came to do, is to offer himself a sacrifice for you and for me, for our sins and the sins of this world, John 3, 16. Secondly, he came to tangibly reveal the love of God. I mean, Jesus came and just loved on humanity in all kinds of ways, healings and and deliverance and raising from the dead and then literally offering his life on the cross. He came to identify with us, to identify with our weaknesses, our sufferings, and even our temptations. And he came to demonstrate what true humility is. Do you know what true humility is? When you're willing to give up your rights for the sake of another, that they might experience what God has for them. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why he confined himself and, and became dependent on his father. But I want to give you another reason why Jesus had to go out into the wilderness to be alone with God. Listen, it's so that he himself would not get ahead of the father's will. Remember what Jesus prayed in the garden? If it's possible, remove this cross, remove this suffering from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, what I want, but what you want. So even Jesus kept himself following the Father's leading. Now, if Jesus had to do that, what does that say about you and me? And our need as well to stay in step with God rather than trying to get ahead of God. I mean, think about this, please. And, and I, I want you to receive this not like academically, not as, as teaching, so to speak. I want you to receive this as your reality. Jesus came to live a human life on this earth that none of us are capable of living, a perfect life. Paul calls him in the book of Romans, he's like the second Adam, like the first Adam blew it, so God's son came to do it. And he lives out this perfect life, and then he goes and he dies on the cross as, as a sinner. Even though he lived out a perfect life, he then takes all of our sins on his shoulders and dies to death because the wage of sin is death. And then God accepts that sacrifice. Then God takes that perfect life and he places it on top of you and me and looks at us like we've always lived a perfect life. Isn't that amazing? God looks at you and me as though you have no, no sin in your past. 
No sin in your present, no sin in your future. That's how he accepts you and me. Can you, can you, re, you, know, can you receive that in your mind and your heart, no matter what your flesh is telling you right now? And Paul just, Paul just bursts out with praise over this. Because remember, man, if there was ever a sinner, it was the Apostle Paul. He was out murdering Christians, getting them, you know, sent into prison, suffering, trying to destroy the church, and God ambushes him and changes his life. So as Paul's thinking about that, listen to what he says when he writes this in Ephesians. I'm going to ask you to come back to it later. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Why? Because we are united with Christ. All those blessings come because of what he has done for us. He says, even before he made the world, God loved you. God loved us and chose you, chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. How can we be holy without fault in his eyes? Because Christ lived a holy and faultless life. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? We're part of that family. And to bring us to himself through Jesus Christ. Paul goes on, he says, this is what he wanted to do. And look, it gave him what? What's it say? It gave him great pleasure to do this. All that suffering and pain was of great pleasure for the joy set before him, it says in Hebrews. He suffered the cross. He endured the cross. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Next time you take a shower, just think of that water coming over you as God pouring his grace out on you. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Can I get an amen? Amen. That's for you and that's for me. And that's something we should be able to celebrate. And like I said, it meant so much to the Apostle Paul given who he was. Now, in order for Jesus to accomplish all of that, he needed to go out into the Eremos, into the wilderness, and be with his Father. What is this teaching you and me? Here's a principle you might want to jot down. The more demands are placed on our lives, the more we need to be alone with God. I want you to say it with me. Ready? The more demands are placed on our lives, the more we need to be alone with God. Wow. Jesus knew demands. Jesus knew pressure. It faced him every day. I mean, there was the criticisms There was the threats. There was the desires. There was the willingness to make him king right now, it says in John 6. He faced all of that temptation, all of that pressure. So many people, so many crowds, that sometimes he had to get in a boat and get out in the water away from the crowds. They're literally ready to crush him. And he knew in order to meet all those demands and all those needs, he needed to be with the Father. Now, that really strikes me deeply in my soul. Because sometimes I feel like there's so much pressure in my life, so many demands on my life, that my tendency is to, because I'm type A, is to rush into the day and start attacking everything I need to get done and stay up as long as it needs to take to get it done 
and hit repeat button and do it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And every once in a while taking some, you know, days or a week or two off that usually end up being stress-filled anyway to supposedly rest. Does that sound like you? Because I had all of you in mind when I wrote that. I don't know if you realize it or not, but when we live that way, in essence, what we're saying is, is we're not weak like Jesus was. I know none of us would ever say that. <laughs> none of us would ever think that, would we? But sometimes we behave like, like we're stronger than Jesus because we can go without our time with God. Or the way we do it is we just rush through our time with God. I'll catch God on the commute. Honestly, can you drive around here and really think about God? Because I can't. Or we say, I'll get to it later, and later never comes. And by the way, and I know the pastors here, like Pastor Brian, all of us would say to you, we're just as challenged in this area, and we're pastors. Because there's a lot of ministry to get done. And honestly, here's an honest moment. I wish you had more of our students in here. I know junior high is away on their retreat, but listen carefully. Sometimes it just seems boring, doesn't it? Nobody wants to nod for that one. It just seems boring. It just seems like work to do. It feels like getting up at 5 a.m. and doing your homework before you go to class. You hate it. It's a drudgery. You just got to do it. And sometimes that's how it feels for us to be with God. What are we missing? What, what is it about being with God that has gotten messed up in our minds that, that we avoid it or we rush through it or we struggle with it? Let, let me jot this down for you. Here's the reason. Here's the reason why we should seek God. Here's what will help it not feel rushed and not feel like homework. The reason to seek God in prayer is, first of all, simply to be in his what? In his loving presence. In his loving presence. That's why Jesus, that's why Jesus went into the wilderness to be with his Father. Now listen carefully. He went for relationship first. He did not go with his list first. And that's the difference between him and a lot of us. A lot of us go to God with our lists, which really are kind of our demands. Or we have this huge list, and we wonder how we're going to get through it all. Can I just say this to you right now? It would be far better for you to go and just be with him in relationship and leave your list behind. Because that's what he wants the most, is the relationship. Is the relationship. Then the list will come. Jesus wanted to be with him. Or to put it in a different way, we could say this. It is out of soaking in his presence that we gain the power and capacity to pray life-changing prayers and face the demands of life. In other words, if you want to know power, kingdom power in your life, if you, keep, if you read that whole passage I signed for you this week, and you look at the miracles that Jesus did, you look at the authority that Jesus had, one of the songs they sang today about the authority of Christ in our lives. If you want to know that, it starts with being with God first. Everything Jesus did came out of his relationship with his Father. Everything. And everything that you and I do in our lives. 
from our job, whatever that might be, your vocation might be, to our marriage, to our parenting, to our friendships, toward bringing the kingdom of God near to a lost world, everything must flow out of being with God. We are too focused on doing. We need to be more focused on being with God, soaking into his presence. If you soak in a bath, right, you, you have to, if, to soak in something, you have to take time. To soak in something is to, is to let it affect you, right? To get into your pores or your system. To soak in a hot tub, to soak, you know, wherever it is, right? It's to let it get into you. You need to soak in God. You need to soak in his presence. And what's interesting in the prayers of Jesus, other than the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer, where you'll find kind of a method for praying, but even there it begins with relationship, what we learn about Jesus in his prayer life is that it was all about relationship, and he thought about his father as Abba, which is the Aramaic term that's used there, and Abba literally means daddy. There is a deep affection in the Trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I hope you know that. The Bible says God, by his very nature, is what? Love. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but when you accepted Christ into your life, you were brought into that love relationship. You have become commingled with God in intimacy. I was teaching on this a while back in another country, and it was mostly men who were listening, and I, I did a little, little teaching on, on parenting, especially fathering. These are all leaders, and you know they're busy, and they struggle to be good dads. And I was talking about affection between father and children, especially father and sons. And I was saying, you know, my son is 42 years old and I still kiss him when I see him and when I say goodbye on the neck. And I could tell something wasn't right in the room because I got these strange looks. A few people were kind of laughing and others were kind of like this. And I thought, okay, time out. What just happened? And what I found out is culturally, you know, they don't show affection like that with their sons because it's a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of masculinity. So this was a lot of fun. I didn't tell the last service. I grabbed one of them who was about my son's age, and I said, no, no, no. I said, you guys have it all wrong. Let me, let me, let me demonstrate this for you. And, and, and Andre came forward, and I gave him a kiss on the cheek. And you would have thought I was with a bunch of little school kids. They're, like, all laughing and giggling. And, oh, you know. and I said, that's, that's how God feels about you and me. Read the story of the prodigal son again. And that father that wraps his arms around his son and kisses him on the neck, that's a picture of God. Jesus gave us that story as a picture of God. And I know we live in a culture where dads aren't perfect and some of us have maybe had a bad experience with the father and our tendency is to take our bad experience with our father and attribute that to our experience with God the father. And I told you when we started this series, please don't do that. Please don't let your human experience inform how you think about God. Don't let what the culture says inform how you think about God. I'm here to tell you today that no matter what kind of father you had here on earth, your father in heaven loves you, forgives you, and accepts you. Whether you feel it or not, it's the truth. Whether you feel it or not, it's the truth. And that truth, that truth needs to soak into your life. Jesus knew how much his father loved him, and he lived out of that love. Remember at Jesus' baptism? You read it there if you read the whole chapter 1 of Mark. 
He says, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Say it with me. You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Now, now we're going to try something weird, okay? Instead of, instead of son, all right, I want you to put your name here, okay? So it's going to sound weird online in here as well. You're going to say, for instance, I would say, you are my dearly loved son, Dale. Or my wife would say, you're my dearly loved daughter, Marsha, and you bring me great joy. Can you guys do that? Let's try it. Your own names, not mine, please, all right? Your own names, ready? One, two, three. You are my dearly loved son, Dale, and you bring me great joy. Now, that's easy to say. Here's my question for you. Do you believe it? See, a lot of us struggle to actually believe it because we know how unworthy and how unholy we are. But God doesn't love you because of how good you are. God loves you because of how good his son is and what his son has done for you and for me. Now, I want to read to you a passage out of John chapter 17 that I'm going to ask you to go back and meditate on. And the reason I'm reading this is because I want you to see how Jesus prayed for you specifically a long time ago to be part of his love relationship. This is found on page 1646 if you're using the book in the, in the pew there. In verse 20, Jesus says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, meaning Peter, James, John, the rest, but also for all, that's you. You could actually write your name in there if you want, but not in the pew Bible unless you take it with you. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. See, that's you and me. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. Doesn't that just blow you away? Father, I'm praying, let Dale just become one in the Trinity with us. Father, and I am in you. And then he goes on and he says, and may they be in us that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me. That just is amazing. So that they may be one as we are one. I am in them through the Holy Spirit and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Can you imagine that? God loves you right now as much as he does his own son, Jesus Christ. Father, I, verse 24, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Oh, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do, and these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. Isn't that amazing? Tim Keller says that maybe one of the reasons Jesus went into the wilderness every day was just to soak in the fact that his father loved him and found great joy in him. Some theologians use the, use the term, we have been seared in Christ. You know that word sear, when you talk about cooking meat like a steak, if you want to sear a steak, which at this point I shouldn't be mentioning because we're all hungry. When you want to sear a steak, you take that steak, you place it on really high heat for just a couple of minutes. And the idea behind it is that it will lock in to that steak all the juices, all the flavor. To be seared in Christ means to lock in my life every day God's love, God's affection, God's desire for me. See, that's what Jesus did. And that's why he could then go out and withstand all the pressure and all the temptations from the crowds and from the devil. 
It's why he could go out and heal a leper, and I'll talk to you about that in a couple weeks, and a paralytic. That's why he could go out and keep focus on the mission, which is to preach the good news, not just meet peripheral needs, because he was doing it out of that relationship with God. Here's your assignment this week. I'd love to challenge you to go back and read Ephesians 1 and John 17. And, and this, this, this next week, once, twice, if you can, three times a day, just read it and let it minister to you. Soak in what God is saying he's done for you. Just receive it. Bask in it. Enjoy it. You say, well, I can't do that and get my list done. Then, then forget about your list. Just do that. Just do that. And be alone with him. You know, that's something that Sam was learning to do. Remember Sam last week? Remember I left you kind of hanging on that? What's going to happen to him? If you weren't here last week, what happened is Sam is, is a man. It's not his true name in an area where we, as a church, are planting 30,000 churches in the next 10 years. His life's been affected because of your prayers and your generosity. He was part of a militia group that was trying to liberate their state from the national government. It's a futile attempt, but he was part of that militia group. And one day they went into a certain village to raid the village for money and for food, and an old man walked up and stuck a piece of paper in, in Sam's pocket and he forgot about it until he was washing his dirty clothes out in the jungle and he pulled that strip out and he read it in his language. It was from Mark chapter 8, verse 35, where Jesus says, what, what good does it do a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And it really bothered him. And he thought to himself, so what if we are able to liberate our state and I die for it? What, what value, what worth is that in my life? What does my life mean? And he couldn't get it out of his mind. And the next time they went to that same village, he found that old man who happened to be a pastor, and he said, what does this mean? And the man explained to him the gospel, and he prayed to receive Christ in that house. The man said, you're going to have to go back to your, to your military camp. And he says, when you go back, he goes, two things. One, pray in the name of Jesus, and two, don't sin. <laughs> he went back to that camp, and he thought to himself, how do I keep from sinning? How do I keep from going out threatening, beating people up, or killing people? How am I going to do this? And, and what if my commander finds out that, that I've become a Christian? So he began to pray in Jesus' name. That's where I left off, so let me pick it up. So he kept praying in Jesus' name that God would help him through this to figure it out. And he soon found out that the camp commandant, this is guerrilla warfare, right? These guys live in tents. The commandant had assigned him for, for kitchen duty for the next several weeks. Now, most people, most soldiers don't want to be involved doing kitchen work. They want to be out, you know, fighting the battle. He was thrilled. That meant he wouldn't have to go out and rob and threaten and kill. But then there was still the issue, what happens when he finds out I'm a Christian? He kept praying in Jesus' name, and soon he was called into the commandant's tent. And the commander said, word has come to me from the outside, from a pastor, that you have become a Christian. Sam swallowed hard. Oh no, what's going to happen to me now? Commander said, they've asked me to release you. And he said, I am willing to do that. Do you want to go? Before he answered that question, I want you to remember this, that if you leave this camp, your fellow soldiers will see you as a traitor and they may try to kill you and I cannot guarantee your safety. 
Well, to him, it was such an obvious answer to prayer. And he wanted out. He said, yes, I want out. And he left. And where do you think he went? He went straight for that village where that pastor was. The pastor who had actually written the commander and gotten the message to him, the pastor was waiting for him with several other men. And they took him by the hand. And they went for a long walk. He had no idea where they were taking him until they came into the clearing and there was the local police station. Sam said, my heart began to beat fast and I became very fearful. Had I just, had I just left the jungle and my comrades only to be now turned in by these Christians to the authorities? The authorities took him into a room and they locked him in that room. And he sat there for a very long time contemplating what was going to happen to him. As he did, there was a window in the room, Sam says. This is all written out by him. There was a window in the room, and he said, I saw two official vehicles pull up. And out of the vehicles came high commanders from the state, government officials. And the thought that ran through his mind is, I'm going to be tortured for information about the militia and I'm going to spend the rest of my life in jail. Is this how God answers prayers? I will tell you in two weeks what God did, Brian. <laughs> <laughs>